0: Well, that's what we have come to celebrate this morning. We've come to celebrate that good news, the good news of great joy, the baby that was born, it seems, 2008 years ago in the city of Bethlehem in Judea, a little village that had really nothing to say for itself, no sense of anything significant happening other than that there had been a prophecy that one day the eternal king would be born and it's interesting because in that moment as we're going to study in just a moment words like joy and peace and savior were used words that are not lightweight words that God doesn't just throw around joy peace A savior. And those who first came into contact with this baby were overwhelmed by what they saw. They were changed by what they saw. Quickly they told other people about it because they couldn't contain themselves. The the news was too spectacular. The news was too life-changing. It couldn't be kept within. And since that moment, since that night that Jesus was born, people have been talking about him ever since. There's not a single person that you will run into in life that does not have a completely neutral belief about Jesus Christ. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody has a thought. Some are more fervent than others. Some are more passionate than others. Others are just, eh, doesn't doesn't matter to me. But everybody has an opinion. There's really nobody else in history by far that that is true of some people are dismissing it it's a giant hoax it was created and perpetuated by people who wanted to advance a certain idea that God cared about people but come on seriously why would God if he exists possibly care about us he's he's detached it doesn't matter to him and, and if there is some kind of supreme being, he certainly isn't involved in our lives. Even though Jesus is accepted as a historical person, other people would just reject it out of hand. They don't want to believe in God. They don't want to believe that that um, that we would be accountable to a holy God. That's that's unthinkable. We don't we don't want to accept that. And if there is a God, then Jesus being God is ridiculous. It's not worth our attention or our discussion. And Christmas is about other things. It's not about Jesus. That, that's irrelevant. Others won't believe or they marginalize Jesus because he doesn't fit into their ideal that man is inherently good that we're okay, that we don't have to worry about it, that if there is a God, that he will accept us however we are because he has to be loving so he can't possibly extend any discipline because we parents know that when you're loving, that means you never discipline your kids. You never hold them accountable. That's why it's going so well in our culture. God certainly wouldn't intervene. He he wouldn't, he wouldn't come into history to be our savior. So a lot of people honestly don't know what to do with Jesus. They don't know what to do with this celebration at Christmas. So what do we do with him? What do we do with this passage we're going to study? Is it, What do we do with the account of his birth? Is this just some pipe dream? Is this just something that that was created, some hope of this concept of a God that cares, this this God that would intervene in history and, and help us and deliver us from sin, is this actually real or is it just a creation of the mind? Because if it's real, it changes everything. If this is a fact, if what we read is a fact, then the good news of great joy about salvation and peace with God is a fact that we can't ignore. We can't just dismiss it and say, well, it doesn't matter, and and maybe it's not real. If if these verses that we're going to read are reality, everybody's accountable to it, and it changes everything, and it gives us hope that we can't imagine. Now, let's take our Bibles. You may already be there, and turn to this record of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. This passage is so familiar to us, but I really pray this morning that we'll be able to see it in a new light. The first six verses, which we're not going to read, you know them well. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6 establish the historical time frame surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. It gives details about location, about the people that were involved the fulfillment of prophecy, the foreshadowing of the future, all in that compact section. And Luke includes those details. He was a doctor, so he knew details. He knew to give specificity, and he gave specificity because it gives the passage credibility. This is not just, well, there was this baby that was born, and it was special. We're not going to really tell you when it was or the circumstances around it, but you just have to trust us. He's very specific. It happened when Caesar Augustus declared a census. It was when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the world came to to give the census and to be taxed. And Joseph and Mary came from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because that was the house uh, and lineage of of, uh, David. And they they had to be there specifically, go to their hometown, so to speak, and, and be registered. This was a historical event. And as they're there, and as Luke details this, he tells what happens. Now, for a doctor to list something that wasn't true or to make something up would be very illogical because it would take away the credibility of his reputation. So Luke doesn't just throw this in as an aside. This is something he has to detail to to help us to understand this actually happened. And clearly the shepherds that we're going to read about in a minute had gone around and told people what had gone on. They they publicly declared the truth that they had heard from the angel. So you've got a doctor whose credibility is sure, and he's saying this happened, time frame, place, situation, players, uh, events of the night. Then you've got these shepherds that are coming out, and they're saying we saw something too, and we're not scared to talk about it. In fact, you've got to hear about it because it happened to us, and it changes everything. So you've got all this detail. Let's read what happened. Start in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joys, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God and the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now we've seen depictions of this event, of this scene. So many times that we already have a preconceived notion in our head of what it might have looked like. But I want you really this morning to, to try to put yourself in the scene. Try to, try to dispel the Christmas card image that you have, some of which are wildly inaccurate. And try to really imagine based on what we just read, based on the text, what this scene might have looked like. It's a quiet night. The stars are out. There are very few torch lights in the in the houses and the buildings of the village that's nearby Bethlehem. Just a tiny village. We're not talking a a city even. Just a little village. And it's probably late, and people have gone to bed, preparing for the next day. And the sheep are kind of. Grazing lazily, it's very quiet, there's no extra sound, there's no light pollution. It's just a quiet night and the shepherds are hanging out. Talking here and there, rehashing stories, talking about stuff that doesn't really matter. Nothing, earth shattering is happening, nothing's going on. There's certainly no real expectation that, that this night will be like no other night. And even if it is, it's highly doubtful that they'll be in on it. They're just sitting on a hillside with some sheep. They're not significant in any way. They're not exactly people that are going to be in on something important when it happens. In their culture, shepherds were the lowest class. They were, they were the people that, that nobody looked up to because they were at the bottom. And they really had a pretty unsavory reputation. They were known to be thieves and known to be dishonest. Whether it was uh, putting their sheep on somebody else's land and letting them eat good grass. Or, or whether it was stealing crops in the field. Or whatever the case may be. Shepherds were not the class of society. They were people that nobody looked up to. And if there's one confirmation this morning that, that salvation through Jesus Christ is not for the elite or not for just those who are privileged or not just for those who, who are the top of the culture, it's this that the Word of God, that the gospel came to the dregs of society. They weren't popular or admired or, or, or anything that anybody would say they add to the culture. They were just shepherds. And if there's any confirmation that salvation is not just for the righteous or for the good, for people that are moral or or have a spiritual inclination or are interested in God, it's this, because the shepherds were looked down on by the religious culture and by the religious leaders because their work took them out of church. It kept them out of spiritual activities because they had this constant responsibility of watching the sheep. Listen, if the gospel is only for the moral or those who are interested in spiritual things, then the first news about Jesus' birth wouldn't have come to these guys. Everything about them was the antithesis of what we might expect would be the first messengers of the news that salvation was coming to mankind. But it fits with what Jesus says, because he says, I didn't come for those who are spiritual. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. I came to find those who are separated from me. And that's all of us. Bible says that there is none righteous. Not one. And we try to convince ourselves that we're pretty good and that we're okay. But every single one of us would have made the choice that Adam and Eve did. Every single one of us would have defied God and rebelled against God and complained about God like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Even Moses did that. Even Moses disobeyed. And every one of us would have failed to stand for Christ. And every one of us would have turned and run away. And every one of us would have been in the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Every single one of us would have been in that situation because we're sinners. But Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, while we were separated from God, while we were deep in sin, while we are indifferent about our own guilt, while we were smug in our self-confidence and loved to do for ourselves, uninterested in the Lord, let alone asking for Him. While we were that, that's when Christ came. This was not an entrance into humanity because people begged for it. People didn't care. God had been silent. Very few were even thinking about God. And God says, that's the time. Let's make it abundantly clear. Nobody is looking, so I'm going to come. That's why the shepherds, if you look back at the text, are the perfect audience for this good news of great joy, because they represent us. The shepherds weren't on any great career path. They they, they didn't have any real hope of advancement. There was nothing they were aspiring to. Their jobs stunk, literally and figuratively. Their social standing was not high. They weren't respected. Their future was uninspiring. They weren't very religious. In fact, they were indifferent and disinterested in God. Spirituality wasn't exactly at a a high point in Israel. God hadn't spoken for four centuries, and and there was really nothing happening. The priests and the Pharisees were corrupt. They were teaching a false law. Nothing is taking place at this point. The nation has abandoned God, except for a few hypocritical Pharisees and a remnant of believers. There, There isn't much going on spiritually in the nation. So in a way, the shepherds are a great metaphor For the world today, God never does anything accidentally. God never does something and goes, Oh, I didn't really mean that, or or, Oh, that was a great coincidence, or That kind of came together, I didn't plan that, but that, that worked awesome, didn't it? Everything He does is intentional, and going to the shepherds is intentional because it shows the need of humanity. Nothing gave the shepherds hope. And that concept of hope in our culture today, what is it? It's just a slogan. It's just a political word that we toss around. An empty promise. Well, we've got hope. And, and, and this will bring us hope. But there's no sense of hope in our world today. Can you find any? When you look at the news and you watch what's going on and you browse through the internet, do you see hope shining? I don't. But instead of fighting for it, Instead of searching for it, instead of seeking God for it, what's so disheartening is that people have largely just dropped into a collective indifference. If we just ignore the problem, maybe it'll go away. But ignoring it doesn't change the fact that there's uncertainty everywhere. Even the threat of extinction doesn't move us. I mean, the Mayans were wrong, right? We're all here. But but there wasn't exactly panic in the streets. In fact, people didn't really even get worked up about it. I mean, we we're talking about the extinction of the world. But we're shopping. I was in the mall yesterday. And that was a big mistake, by the way. And and I just was kind of processing, listening. I mean, Friday there had been a lot of jokes about the end of the world, but no expectation that it was going to end. And and there was, uh, you know, just kind of this sense of ha ha, crazy Mayans. But I was in the mall yesterday, and I and I watched the people swarming around. Maybe you were one of them. I just sat on a bench for a while. I don't usually do that, but I did yesterday. And I watch people swarming around and, and stressed out and, and buying like crazy to the point where you actually have to wonder whether anybody's watching the news or anybody has any kind of sense of recession and fiscal cliff and all that jazz. But people are just buying, walking around, there's, and there's so much volatility in the world and there's so much sense of uncertainty, but, but people seem dulled by it. In fact, it seems like us biblical Christians are the only ones that are talking about it logically. The only ones that are kind of processing it and and looking at it through the perspective of the word and philosophy. But everybody just thinks we're crazy. Everybody just says, well, you know, you guys don't have any any logic. But, you know, as I walk through the mall, I, I just couldn't shake the feeling as I watched people. And as I looked at their eyes, that there is this great void in their hearts. There's this great emptiness in in so many people's minds and a longing, really, for something substantial for their souls. Now, I have no idea if the shepherds felt that. But if they did, they got the answer. They're hanging out. They're completely unexpected of what's going to happen. It's night. They're tired. The sheep are taking care of themselves. They're not going anywhere. They're too lazy. And they're hanging out, maybe dozing off a little bit. And suddenly the angel appears. One minute they're talking quietly under the winter sky. And the next minute the whole hillside is filled with this huge bright light and the unique sound of the angel's voice. In fact, it's very interesting. The text says, look back at verse 9 just for a minute. The text says that the angel stood before them. Now I've studied and preached this text I don't know how many times but I had never seen that before. Every piece of art, and I researched a lot, every piece of art, every Christmas card shows the angel up in the sky and kind of hanging like he's from wires. You ever seen that? I saw one where the angel was like this. I'm like, that, that would be uncomfortable. And the angel's kind of got his arm up in the air. You know what I'm talking about? But that's not what the text says. The text says this wasn't at an appearance, uh, excuse me, this wasn't at a distance. This was close and personal. The word in the text means that he stood right in front of them, In their presence. So the angel isn't up in the sky off at a mile away. He all of a sudden, as they're sitting there kind of lazily, he just stands right in front of them. See, even in the communication of this news, heaven doesn't stand far off. And we need to hear that this morning because that's powerful and reassuring to us. God always draws close. He draws close for salvation. He draws close when we pray. He draws close when we worship. He draws close when we gather in His name. He draws close when we're in need, when we're serving, when we're of a humble and contrite spirit, when we're talking about Him, when we're in spiritual warfare. He's always there. And we can be confident of that this morning, that God is not just some removed, indifferent, uncaring, cold, calloused God. He is the personal God who came to us, and he always comes to us. Oh, find strength in that this morning. In the midst of this mess we're in and the uncertainty and the the just absolute confusion of our culture, God is near to us. The angel doesn't stand over there. He comes and stands right in front of them, and we need to praise God for that this morning because he's so good to us. What must have been like? And the angel doesn't walk up. They don't see him coming from a distance, so they have time to prepare. He just shows up. God could have done it differently. He could have gone to the most influential person, the people that would be the most believable He could have appeared to the whole city at once. He could have come up in the sky in the middle of the day and darkened the clouds and and then appeared. Or, or, Or he could have sent Christ as some kind of warrior to challenge Herod and to take on like the people wanted. But instead he comes to these shepherds and he condescends himself and comes as a baby born to nobodies. Announced to people nobody cared about so that he could offer salvation to us. What was it like? The angels are the, uh, uh, the shepherds are the first recipients of the news. And the angel just appears. And there's light and there's brightness because he's just been standing in the presence of God. So he still has the glory around him. Just imagine the surprise and the shock of that moment. Try to picture it in your mind. All of a sudden, they're not only awakened physically, but they're awakened spiritually. And the angel comes and he stands before them. And their response is logical, right? They're terrified. The Bible says here that they were absolutely frightened. The text literally means they feared with a great fear. Double meaning there. Just like, boom, we're scared and, and we're really, really scared. This is not just, oh, hey, there's an angel. What do you make of that? About a mile away? You think that's an angel, Charlie? Yeah, it might be. I don't know. Let's see what he says. This is, boom! There he is. And the hillsides lit up. And they hear a voice like they've never heard before. And they're completely and utterly terrified. But my heart, I tell you this week, even though that makes sense, my heart's been impressed. Look back at the text for a minute. That that wasn't the only kind of fear they felt. I think there was also a fear of uncertainty. Maybe it was based on their spiritual indifference. Maybe it was based on the the implications of what an angel appearing to them might mean. They may not have been very religious, but they had read about angels and this was definitely an angel. There was no mistaking what this was. And the appearance is so sudden. And the light is so otherworldly and heavenly. and, And there's no possible explanation of what this could be. So they're completely terrified. And he speaks. And it's verified. This is an angel. What does this mean? What's this mean for us? Is God confronting us? Imagine the plethora of thoughts that went through their mind in that moment. And notice that the first words that heaven gives address that fear. He says very simply... Do not be afraid. Now, I believe that that phrase has a double meaning. Both, don't be afraid of the situation. It's okay. I'm not going to kill you. Okay? But I think there's a secondary, more important meaning. I think he's saying, don't be afraid of the spiritual uncertainty you feel. How do we come to that conclusion? Because after saying, don't be afraid, the angel doesn't utter one more word word about the fact that he's from heaven he only talks about the answer for man's condition I bring you good news oh and it's of great joy and it's for everybody there's a baby that's been born in Bethlehem and he's born for you and he's the savior look back at those words That sentence, that sentence is all the world needs to know this morning. It's the solution to man's sin and man's separation from God and spiritual death. It's the answer to fear and hopelessness and depression and lack of purpose. It's the resolution for war and for conflict and for division. Everything about God's intervention and plan for us to be rescued out of sin and out of death is complete and it's effective. And as the angel says, do not miss this. The angel says, it is for all people. Notice how inclusive the gospel is. Notice how broad it is. Anyone can receive it. Because it's offered to everyone. God does not discriminate based on race or nationality or sex or morals or status or background or good works. You know why? Because absolutely none of those things qualify us. We have nothing And we are actually disqualified for salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory and holiness of God. But in the same way we have all sinned, God says, I now will offer salvation to all. You're all guilty and I'm going to offer to save all of you. That's only fair, right? Actually, that's beyond fair. That's called grace. What we don't deserve, what we can't earn, what we can't fathom we would ever get to have, God says, I'll offer it to you. And look at the strength of the message here. Pick out a couple words. You know this so well, so we've got to dive into it a different way. But look how everything in this sentence offers spiritual hope and security. Four things we can know this morning. The first is that we can know that there is good news in the middle of the mess that we're living in. Not just the state of the world, but the state of the human heart. An uncaring, indifferent, disaffected God would allow us to waddle in our, in our condition, and, and He would mock our failure, and He would flaunt His perfection. Only a loving, gracious, caring God would give us any true hope. We can know this morning that there is good news. We can also know that there is a Savior for anybody who trusts. And the only one who can save us is Jesus Christ. An uncaring, indifferent, indifferent, disaffected God would say, you're a sinner. You are quickly condemned. There will be no argument about it. And I'm going to punish you without any hope. I'm going to punish you for defying and disobeying me. Only a caring, loving, gracious God would provide a way of escape and then go over and above any expectation we might have by saying, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to offer myself for your sin." A God who didn't care would never think about that. And then third, we can know this morning that this only happens because of God's love and mercy. An uncaring, disaffected, indifferent God would watch as we try in vain to save ourselves, always falling short. And then he would scorn us as we try to convince him, hey, I'm good enough. Only a loving, gracious, caring God would prove his love by intervening and sacrificing and forgiving and cleansing and transforming and securing us. We can know that there's good news. We can know that there's a savior. We can know that that's only because of God's love and mercy. Fourth, would you see, we can know that trusting in Jesus brings eternal Peace to our soul. An uncaring, indifferent, disaffected God would punish us without delay. Content to condemn us and proud that dirty, filthy, sinful man is separated from him forever. Only a loving, gracious, caring God would be slow to anger, rich in love Patient beyond belief, never giving up, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, saying, I will provide peace with you that will never end when you trust in Christ. Of all the words in this text, the one that has stuck out to me the most this year is that word peace. It's such an impossible word right now, isn't it? Do you see any peace? Do you see any sense of this? It's such a fragile concept right now that has absolutely no foundation in our world. There's no such thing as peace that man can create that's proven every single day and there's no peace from the thought of of meriting our own salvation no one has ever lived by that theory and come to the end of their life with the absolute absolute security and confidence and assurance that they have done enough to be saved just on the basis of what they've done. That's because we only experience peace when we have the favor of God. And we only have the favor of God when we trust in Christ as Savior. He alone is the one who provides peace between us and him. So why Jesus? Let's, let's conclude. Why, why Jesus? Why is he the one? We'll look back at the text for a minute. We'll see. It's in verse 11. Why Jesus? Because he completely meets our spiritual need. It's interesting. Another thing I had never really focused on before, even though I learned this passage as a child, I've quoted it how many times, studied it, preached it i never thought about those three words like I did this year in verse 11. It says, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Every one of those words is intentional. And it covers the whole scope of what we need spiritually. He is our savior. The word means deliverer. The word means the one who rescues us. Why do we need rescuing? Why do we need deliverance? Why do we need salvation? Because we're condemned by our sin. And then it says that he is Christ. The word literally means anointed. He's the one sent from heaven. Why do we need heaven's intervention? Because we can't save ourselves. We're condemned in our sin and we can't save ourselves. So God either looks at us and laughs and says, Sorry. Or he intervenes. Unto you is born a Savior. You need that because you're stuck in sin. Unto you is born Christ. Heaven has to intervene because you don't have any hope on your own. And look at the third word. And he's the Lord. The word means owner and master. Because we can't save ourselves. Because we can't control this inclination we have in us to sin or rebel against him. God says, I tell you what. I'm going to buy you from sin. I'm going to purchase you. Now you're gonna be mine. A lot of people struggle with the lordship of Christ because they're like, well that doesn't seem very fair that God wants to control my life. Guess what? He bought you. He owns you. You're either owned by the devil or you're owned by God. Take your pick. God says, I will be gracious and I will offer myself. I'll pay the price on my own blood. I'll sacrifice for you so you can be free of sin's ownership. That's why all of heaven rejoiced at this moment. We can never say, oh, God was coerced into it. He had to do it. No, he didn't. And we can never say, well, he kind of begrudges us. He doesn't, he doesn't really enjoy this. He just did it because he feels sorry for us. No, he didn't. He did it because it brought him glory. And he did it because he knew that it would bring us joy. That's why the one angel who's standing in front of them as they're still terrified, all of a sudden he's joined by too many angels to count. God sends the full team from heaven. See, God doesn't hold back, right? When God wants to do something in your life, he's not going to say, oh, give me just a little bit, just, just kind of lead you on a little bit, kind of bait you. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I know it feels like that, but that's not how God it works. He sends the whole team. He empties heaven. Everybody go down there. Tell it. This is the greatest moment of history. Go down there. And the sky and the land is filled with angels that say God is willing to save mankind forever. I tried to imagine what that would look like from town. If anybody was awake that night, and they're kind of sleepwalking, getting some Fruit Loops or something, and they look out the window out to the hills. What in the world? Because everything was lit up. We don't know if anybody else saw it. Maybe it was the middle of the night. But we do know that the shepherds saw it and they wouldn't stop talking about it. You see, here's the pivotal thing, and we'll pray. The shepherds had a choice. The angel comes and says, fear not. Uh, Don't worry about your spiritual condition because God is intervening right now. He sent you a child and the child is going to be the savior of mankind. It's for anybody who will believe and God will be magnified and glorified because of this, because mankind can be saved and all of heaven rejoices and the hills are filled with angels and then the angels disappear. Now, at that point, the shepherds have a choice on what to do next. They could sit there and go, hmm, that was interesting. Okay, let's just never talk about this again. But that's not what they do. Look at the text. They say, let us go straight. Don't miss that word. Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us the Spirit records them deciding to actually go and check it out because no matter how dramatic and amazing the announcement was, it was going to be even more spectacular to see the baby. They could have ignored it. They could have rejected it. But they didn't. A lot of people this morning Ignore it and reject it. Maybe it's you. Maybe for a long time you have felt empty and you have been dull and indifferent. Or maybe you are afraid of what it will mean to trust in Jesus Christ. But the Lord's speaking to you today and you're finally aware of it. You're finally seeing the need for it. Listen, you can ignore that, you can walk out the door, you can say, well, that was interesting, kind of challenged my heart, but uh, I don't know. You can do that. But why would you? If God is willing to save you, and God is willing to deliver you from your sin, and God is willing to forgive you, of all that you have done to offend him, what has brought only emptiness and shallowness and a lack of peace and a lack of joy, no matter how much you accumulate, no matter how many people you're with, no matter how many friends you have on Facebook, no matter how far you advance in your job, it means nothing when you die. When you die, it's you and God. And God says, did you trust Christ or not? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day not to walk out the door anymore and say, I'll think about it. Today is the day to decide because Christ has intervened and offered salvation. And for those of us who trust him already, Maybe it's a little more complicated for us. You've heard this account so many times before and you have done religion and you've done church and you're convinced that you're good and and that you're fine. But honestly, your life isn't any different. You're not any different than you were 10 years ago. Your heart isn't really changed. You can't say that your faith is passionate. You can't really say that you love the Lord. I mean, really love the Lord. Listen, the challenge may be the strongest for you this morning. Once the shepherds heard the truth, they were quick and unhesitant to believe. But not just that. Their lives changed definitively. They could no longer go back to the hills. They could no longer go back to what they had done before. In fact, they were unable to do it because they had met the Savior. So to go back to the mundane and meaningless and self-absorbed, that didn't make any sense. They had the answer. And what proves that they changed is that they immediately rejoiced and told others, listen, once you know Jesus Christ, your life completely changes. There is no more room for indifference. There is no more room for living for self. There is no more room for a lack of passion. I would say it is impossible It's impossible to know Christ and to love Christ and to say, well, I just want to live for myself. There is only glorifying and praising God for what we have seen. Church, let's wake up to that in the new year. Not just the same old thing, not just the mundane, not just, well, I'll kind of live with one foot in the world and one foot out of the world. No, it doesn't work that way. The shepherds had nothing. They saw everything and their life changed forever. God can do that in your heart. And I pray he will. Let's close our eyes. Let's open up our hearts to what the Lord wants to say to us this morning. I don't know where you are with the Lord. Only you know that. Only the Lord knows that. Do you know Christ as Savior? Let me just be straightforward with it this morning. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you renounced your sin? And said, I don't want that to control my life anymore. I want to be forgiven and I want a new life. If you have never done that before, I'm telling you this morning, God is willing to save you. He proved it by sending Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill, that we couldn't do because we're sinners. And he went to the cross as our sacrifice he took our sin upon himself as the substitute, and then he died. And then he rose again, and he defeated sin and death and hell, your sin and my sin forever. And he says, I will save you if you trust in me. I don't know if there's anybody in this room this morning that needs to do that, but I pray If you do, that you'll do it right now. Say in your heart, God, forgive me. I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. I have lived for myself. I ask your forgiveness and I ask Christ to save me. I believe in what he has done and I trust in him. If you did that this morning, I'm going to ask you when the service is done, please come down and talk to me. Come down and talk to staff. Come down and talk to deacons. Mature believers, come forward. Be ready. We want you to know what a better time of year to know that Christ loves you and that he is willing to forgive you. Or maybe you are in the second description. And honestly, between you and me and God, You know that you're not living for the Lord. You know that the world still has you. Your heart is not really surrendered. You believe in God, but you you haven't given yourself to the Lord. What better time? To say, Lord, I'm yours. My life is still empty. My life and heart is unchanged. Change me. I'd love to talk to you too. Encourage you, pray for you, strengthen you. The Lord is so good. And He loves us so much. And He has proven it. Don't walk out of here this morning the same as you've always been, going nowhere. Allow the Lord to change your heart this morning and experience joy like you never have before. Good tidings of great joy, and it's for all people. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your love. How can we thank you enough for what you have done to intervene into our lives? We need you so desperately, and Lord, you're willing because you're loving and you're gracious. Lord, I pray that hearts and lives will change this morning. I pray my own heart will be stoked with a greater love and desire for you. Lord, at this time of year, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, may our lives be different because we have seen the child and we know that he is the Savior. We thank you and praise you for what you have done and what you will do in our lives. We thank you for the promise of heaven and the secure hope of salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said together, Amen.